0: Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.
1: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
2: Hey, good morning everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a good one in store today. We're going to be kind of all over the map coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk a little bit about how churches aren't immune to the so-called Great Resignation with um, a, a pastor turned author who uh, spent 40 years as a Presbyterian pastor. He now has a book out about his life, his experiences, called Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life, by Douglas Brower. I almost forgot how to pronounce his last name, and he taught me how and everything. Anyway, he'll be joining us during the third half of our three-hour tour. In the middle hour, we're going to talk about guns and uh, gun regulations uh, and uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's fight against high-caliber guns and what um, the founder of Invest USA CEO Michael Letts has to say about the best way to keep police safe and to keep the public safe we're going to talk about that during the second hour In the first hour, we're going to talk about Will Smith's 10-year ban from the Oscars with anti-racist activist um, Matthew Kincaid, who is also the uh, uh, founder of an organization, uh, he's founder and CEO of Overcoming Racism, Matthew will be joining me in just a few minutes, but uh, we're also going to squeeze in throughout the show today because this is May 5th, or Cinco de Mayo. We're going to tip our sombreros a couple times throughout the show. Um, One of the things going on with the show is we're just getting into our 15th year of doing the Tom Sumner program, and as we pull out of the pandemic I'm hoping to bring back some of the original sizzle Um, I've been doing the show from home now for a couple of years and I'd like to get the show back out on the road like we used to do I'd like to have live music involved that was always a really important part of the show so we have a fundraiser to to help us kind of re-energize and relaunch the Tom Sumner program with uh some of its pre-pandemic sizzle including live music and our first sombrero tip if you will to Cinco de Mayo is um some live music that was performed in the Tom Sumner program studio when I was still working not from home and um it's the uh, mariachi group that um is from uh, Ballet Folklorico. And this is actually uh, "Cielito Lindo, one of my favorite uh, Mexican songs. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My, uh, my guest this hour is the founder and CEO of an organization called Overcoming Racism. He's a former social studies teacher, school administrator, and um, he uh, currently is uh, the co-chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee for the Human Relations Commission, serving the city of New Orleans and has some thoughts on uh, the recent episode between uh, Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Oscars and um, the subsequent uh, 10-year ban of Will Smith from the Oscars. And we're going to talk to him about that. His name is Matthew Kincaid. He joins me by phone. Matt, good morning, and thank you. Welcome uh, to the
3: show. Good morning, good morning.
2: You know, I, this is going to sound and, you know, maybe I'm guilty of the same thing as Chris Rock by making light of, of the whole situation. But recently on the show, I, I commented that, you know, we had a city council meeting. Well, our city council meetings are um, <laughs> tragically deadlocked and in argumentative and. I said, I was watching a city council meeting and I got so exasperated that I looked over at, at, at our local school board meeting during which the president of the school board um, physically attacked the treasurer of the school board. Wow. Two women. And she was striking her repeatedly. And oh my goodness. and then uh, you know I I turned on the Senate confirmation hearings just in time uh, to hear uh, Ted Cruz call babies racist, and I thought <laughs> you know I have just had enough. I think right. so. I think I'm going to kick back and and relax and watch the Oscars.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in for quite the surprise.
2: Well, and that was my point. Where can we turn anymore to find people not behaving badly?
3: You know, that's a really great question. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate that both in our political discourse, um, you know, in the way that we engage with one another, whether it be on social media or in person, it seems like the level of hostility that has kind of just entered our conversation engagement with one another has increased. And I think, you know, the story that you told about this progression of, um, (laughs) tuning into things that you would think would be these kind of mundane or in a lot of ways, I mean, especially when you think about the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, sacred (laughs) types of, um, engagements and to see the ways in which, you know, folks are kind of going out for one another is, it's sad. And I think that, it just speaks to
2: Well and I and um, I and I wanted to start our conversation with that rundown of events because I don't want to start right out of the right out of the shoot throwing Will Smith or Chris Rock under the bus. Do you know what I mean?
3: Right. Well I think that oftentimes what is missing in these conversations is that I feel like we as I mean maybe this is just been true for a very long time, but it feels like perhaps with the onset of social media and and the way that, you know, the pandemic has distanced us from a lot of the person-to-person social interaction for some time, it feels like in the last few years, you know, we've become much more reactionary as a group of people. Um, Something happens uh, or something is intentionally done to cause some sort of a reaction, and, you know, whether it's posted online or we watch it live, like what happened at the Oscars, um, everyone responds in this reactionary way to whatever that stimulus is. And I think as a result of that, when things happen like what happened, you know, at the Oscars between Will Smith and Chris Rock, we just find ourselves on our heels reacting to what happened versus, as we're hopefully we're having right now, you know, this proactive conversation about, you know, having this more proactive conversation about how we can just be, kinder to one another and how we can solve conflict, um, without talking people down or certainly without, you know, physical violence.
2: Well, Matt, you bring up an important point. We talk about, um, the, the vitriol in American political and, um, sociological conversation on social media and so on, and, and that, You know, being behind closed doors with a keyboard, you know, we've gotten into this habit over the last several years of, you know, people arguing and disagreeing and and not really listening to each other. Right. And, And the thing, basically, there should be a button for, if you don't agree with me, you're a moron. You know, then we could just hit the button and we wouldn't have to type that all out. Um, but then you make the point that now, in as we begin to come out of the pandemic, and we're starting to get together face-to-face more, um, we're testing that notion that it was social media and being separate and... You know, behind closed doors, that we could we could just act as trolls because now we're confronting people face to face, and that vitriol is still there,
3: yeah. and well, and I think that when you either look at political leaders or you know people who uh, hold positions of power, I think that there's been kind of this minimization of these baseline levels of decorum. Um, because right now what is, you know, perhaps a lot of the goals of of people who are in the public spotlight is to get that soundbite or to have that moment in the spotlight, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself to civil conversation. I mean, you mentioned what happened at the Supreme Court hearings with Ted Cruz, right? It's like, are we in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing? Are we in a bit to potentially be displayed on the, you know, news entertainment shows that are going to be playing there this evening? And so I I just think that we all have to kind of collectively take a deep breath and press the pause button and think about what it is we want to get out of our choices and decisions. I don't want to necessarily simplify what happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock um, into this kind of uh, reaction to like this broader conversation uh, around the pandemic and and civility Um, because I think that what happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock probably has a lot more to do with things that Will Smith is going through personally that none of us would know. Um, then maybe this broader conversation. But I do think that as you mentioned, um, it feels like we're getting further and further away from being able to have conversations, being able to disagree, being able to s- settle differences, um, without, you know, retreating so far to our respective corners, um, or without lashing out at, at people in ways that ultimately ends the conversation or immobilizes the conversation, rather than bringing us closer to some form of reconciliation.
2: More with overcoming racism, founder and CEO Matthew Kincaid, straight ahead.
1: Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger, T-I-double-G-E-R.
2: That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program
4: on account of because
2: he's so bouncy. woo
4: <laughs>
5: So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov slash vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
2: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Overcoming Racism founder and CEO Matthew Kincaid. Straight ahead. What do you think about? What do you think the Academy should have done? Um, and and this is really a two part question. First, when the event happened, what action should they have taken immediately? And later on with a chance to deliberate was a 10-year ban appropriate?
3: You know, I think this is a really tough question um, because, you know, I'm not necessarily directly in the entertainment industry. All I have to look off of in terms of the ban section of your question is the precedent. (laughs) And I think that if we look at the precedent of who has been banned from the Oscars in the past, um, you're looking at a, a pretty short list of people who've done some pretty horrible things over a very long period of time. You know, you're Harvey Weinsteins and Bill Cosby's and, um, you know, folks of, of that nature. And so I think when you compare what happened with Will Smith to those individuals for whom, you know, people have been aware of kind of what those individuals have been engaged in for a long period of time, um, it feels like this ban is a little bit heavy-handed. I think my major issue with the ban is that it does very little to nothing, one, for the Oscars to take any sort of accountability in this particular scenario about how the situation could have been handled better in the moment and following. But also does nothing to, like, advance this conversation that perhaps we're having about how is this potentially a symptom of this larger problem? And, you know, what are the ways in which we can... In moments of conflict, find restorative solutions that restores Chris Rock, who had to face this both public humiliation but also physical assault, and also Will Smith, who, in a moment, who, um, which should have been this, um, you know, shining moment in his career, what I think most people would argue is a pretty spotless career for the most part up until this point, um, which was obviously mired by his impulsive choices and then of course um jada smith as well in terms of this conversation around a person having a ailment or um you know a condition like alopecia and um the sensitivities that perhaps should be placed around this so um i I, I wish the, the the oscars would have taken more responsibility to um bringing people together in this conversation than um just this punishment because ultimately like you know, punishment uh, isn't so much a consequence in that it doesn't change behavior. Punishment is just punishment; it's a reaction to what happened. In terms of what happened in the moment, um, I feel like I'm a little bit more cloudy on what I what I think should have happened in the moment. You know, I think that Chris Rock um, was consulted in terms of you know what the response would have you know should have been, and ultimately, I think Chris Rock had some agency in that decision. I think if there's one person who should have had the most power over the fallout or the aftermath it should have been the person who was most directly harmed which seemed to be chris rock in that moment it, it seemed like chris rock was fine with will smith staying there so who am i to suggest that something else should have well, happened
2: chris rock seemed to be um it, it just in my humble opinion matt the adult in the world.
3: yeah yeah absolutely you I, know I he he was the him.
2: one you know i I don't think I've seen a better example of someone turning the other cheek,
3: yeah definitely a, a very a, a very a very good example for sure
2: and and he um you know he kept us cool, he went on with the gig and And I'm with you i I don't want to throw Will Smith under the bus. You don't know what kind of pressure somebody's going under when they snap and do something like that. He's had right you know um a a really clean record I mean yes. nothing in the tabloids, you know mm-hmm. no arrest record, you know none of that kind of stuff, and so it's um you know, it's 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 hard to just cancel Will Smith.
3: Right, yeah. Well I think too one of the things that people aren't really talking about also is how Will Smith has used his platform to um facilitate opportunities for other creators. You know, yes, of course Will Smith is still a very large name actor, but to my knowledge now he's producing more than he's even acting. So um the The extension of Will Smith is also a lot of people who are breaking through, getting their first shot. You know, that new show, Bear Lair, just came out and introduced a lot of new, fresh faces to the scene. And I think that, you know, by kind of casting these this, this horrific light on Will Smith because of, you know, perhaps the worst public thing that we've ever seen him do in his career, a lot of times we don't think about the ripple effect of what that does for other people, right? And this is why I say, Um, a restorative type of conversation about why, yes, what was done was wrong. I mean, certainly there should be some sort of consequence as a result of those actions. And quite frankly, there has been a natural consequence to certain productions being put on pause. And obviously there have been, you know, these other additional consequences that Will Smith is going to have to navigate just because of public opinion. But I think this uh, reactionary 10-year ban in a lot of ways is the easiest way out. Um, And, you know, I think that we have a propensity in our society to kind of hold people accountable based on, you know, the the worst thing that we've seen them do rather than thinking about how that action is um, one moment in many, many moments. And unfortunately for Will Smith, this very bad choice, I'm not trying to suggest that it was okay uh took place uh, in an audience of hundreds of people and on a stage in which millions of people were watching. And I think for many of us if our worst moment, if our lowest moment, if a moment where we snapped and lost our cool and, you know, did something that we, you know, no knew in hindsight we had no business doing. If that was projected for the world to see, then I would, you know, argue that probably most, if not all people would be you know, as you use the word canceled or, you know, held to account in these really harsh ways. And so, you know, I, I, would, ho- I would hope like the way that Chris Rock has seemed to respond um, is, you know, a response of empathy, but also one that actually focuses on, well, who was hurt here? <laughs> Let's focus on restoring Chris Rock and, you know, the harm parties. And then well, once we and, do that, then we can the, figure out what happens next.
2: And the other part of, of it is I all I heard during the event was Chris Rock point to Jada Smith, and in a reference to her being bald, said he was waiting for GI Jane two to come out, which wasn't really dissing her about her disease. I mean, it was almost as if he was looking at her baldness as a choice and having a little fun with that choice because of this old film representation of who was it, Demi Moore, maybe, who
3: played I believe so, yeah. Played yeah. the
2: role bald headed. And you know, it it wasn't as intended to be as um, as cruel as it was taken, and well yeah, and I think- what do you do with with comedy if you can't you know if you can't pull out something from pop culture and have a little fun without with it without accidentally getting under somebody's skin to the point where you know the fresh prince comes up and smacks you.
3: Well, yeah, well, I think, you know, there are, I, I would probably agree with you that I don't think that Chris Rock meant this joke to be some intentional. I don't think it was um, about, I don't
2: think it was about the disease at all.
3: You, you know, this intentional dig on alopecia, but with that being said, um, you know, there are all these, you know, there are very real conversations about hair, how significant hair is in the black community, especially most black women. I mean, <laughs> Chris Rock himself produced a film about, um, you know, how black women oftentimes have to uh, produce a narrative, this film, where about how black women face these additional pressures in terms of what's going on with their hair. So, you know, I I, want to hold these two things to be true. And I think that that's one of the things that perhaps is harder for us now than it has been in the past, that more than one thing can be true, that comedians should have the right to push the boundaries a little bit and that we should, you know, not take ourselves so seriously that every time a comedian makes a joke that it requires us to like censor that person or obviously in the worst case scenario, physically assault the person for the case may be, that is true. You know, Um, I'm a huge fan of comedy and I want comedians to be that place where we can, um, you know, push the, push the envelope a little bit uh, in the, in the extent that we wanna make people laugh and, and, and have joy and even have joy in circumstances that otherwise might not be funny or find humor in those things. But I also wanna name that it can be true that a joke can cross the line for a person, especially when that joke, whether intentional or not, because their are outcomes, may be on something like a condition that a person doesn't have control over. So I don't know what the line is. What I do know is that, and I think Will Smith would probably agree, is that his response to the joke was inappropriate and it was an overreaction and there were perhaps better ways to hold, uh, you know, Chris Rock accountable for perhaps that joke crossing the line in, 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 in this sphere or to educate about alopecia or whatever the case may be. Um, while also acknowledging that it was a joke, it didn't seem to be mean spirited. These two things can be true at the same time.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the thing that makes it um, so difficult to navigate. Because you want comedians to go out there, to, to climb out on the, on the ledge, you know, to get out on a limb. But then how do they do that if people are going to, you know, saw the branch off?
3: Yeah, you know, I I definitely think that it's a really, really tough. (laughs) I think it's a really, really tough distinction. Uh, Cat Williams, um, you know, he's, uh, I think, a very great comedian. And, you know, he had a quote about kind of the whole cancel culture thing where, you know, basically he spoke about this dynamic of, you know, well, if you're playing football or you're playing basketball, then, you know, when you're on the court, you know that there is this out of bounds, right? And, you know, it's the job of the person to stay in, in balance. And I think the conversation that we have to figure out is, well, what is out of bounds, right? And, um, I think the reason why that conversation is going to be really hard is because different things are out of bounds for different people and you can't please everyone. And, um, there is a very fine line between funny at someone's expense, um, or, funny you know laughing with people or laughing at people um and there's a very fine line between jokes that you know crack on our these dynamics of our collective condition that are not positive but are funny things we can make humor of or also things that punch down at people or make people feel like they're um being the, you know uh, a person who is uh has less political or social power being the target of a joke that can be malicious or damaging to that person their lived experience. I don't necessarily know what that is. And I think that comedians will continue to push the envelope. And I think that as a public, we will continue to kind of define where those boundaries are. But I think one thing that we all can collectively agree on, and I hope a conversation that can come out of this is that, like, uh, the way that we respond when we believe things are out of bound has to at least have enough space and air that it can be a discussion. Because I don't think one person gets to unilaterally decide, well, this is what crossed the line. Um, And so, um, you know, that's kind of what happened at the Oscars and perhaps why we're talking about it right now.
2: Well, yeah. And I thought it was kind of interesting that Trevor Noah, uh, when he was emceeing the um, White House press corps dinner. And he said, just as he was sort of getting his set rolling he said, Okay, here's the deal <laughs> He says, I know y'all have stressful jobs and you know, all of that. He said, But this is the place to just chill. Just yeah. relax. Just kick back. We're gonna have a little fun with this. And he was and he was actually sort of hypnotizing them into a less antagonistic mindset. Which I thought was you know, brilliant for him to do and sad that he felt he had to um you mentioned the three stooges earlier i used to love them when i was a kid but now it's not funny to see somebody fall down you know what i mean yeah yeah you know i I I used to think that was hilarious (laughs) And, yeah. and now, you know, there are so many ways a person can be hurt falling down stairs or slipping off a curb on the sidewalk or something. And it's, it's just insensitive to laugh at that now. Well, you know, yeah,
3: times change, things change. You know, I think that Different. I mean, I think the reality is that different people find different things funny, but I think if anything, what Trevor Noah did, I think, you know, there's a few ways to look at it. We can say, ah, it's unfortunate that Trevor Noah had to do that. We can also look at it and say, hmm, Trevor Noah, who obviously is extremely skilled at what he does, uh, in a 10 second intervention, found a way to set the stage, set the conditions where. Um, the jokes that would follow could be taken within the right context. Yeah, so Rinoa, he got within, the audience the 10 second intervention. Yeah, he got the audience to give
2: him like, permission.
3: Yeah. Right, he acknowledges the fact that like we have we have a lot of stressful things going on. You know, because like the thing about the Will Smith thing, I just because I've never seen Will Smith do something like this before, I have to assume, and it is an assumption because I'm not in his brain that this response was. You know, something significant was going on either in his relationship with Jada, or like what, whatever. Okay, something something's happening here. Something, right? something, and had so,
2: already lit his fuse.
3: Right. Something. Yes. Yeah, something. Something. There's more to this than perhaps what we know. Well, and there's more to this than what we should know. Right. Um, people who live their lives in the public eye, you know, are are have a right to their own privacy. But um, you know, I think that what Trevor Noah did is a really good example of the acknowledgement that hey. We are probably, you know, there are probably some people in here carrying more than um, what we might know. So let's, like, take a deep breath, let's release those things, and let's laugh for the next hour. And who knows, something as simple as that could, you know, um, open up the door for people to engage um, with, you know, comedy as we perhaps have known of it in the past. It's a very similar intervention than what we do even in our anti-racism workshops because, you know, everyone comes into that conversation with different lived experiences. The thing that people don't frequently understand is that a lot of times when we have conflict with another person, you know, let's say on the basis of race, it's not that other person that we're really conflicting with. What we're really conflicting with is the way that we have been socialized to view the world and the way that they've been socialized to view the world. If we were to strip away all these other superficial dynamics, what we look like, where we live, or, you know, what our thoughts are, what we would probably find is that these two individuals probably want the same thing. They want to make a good living for themselves. They want to make sure that their family is healthy. They want to deal with the stressors that are going on in their lives. When we strip all of the things that divide us away, we start to realize that, like, hmm, most of us want the same things. But yet we still get into these conflicts because we don't take that breath that Trevor Noah took to try to understand the other person's experience. So I think that's a really powerful example.
2: And, and frankly, the breath that Chris Rock took, um, to not overreact.
3: Well, you know, one thing I've heard a lot, you know, people have been making fun of Chris Rock, and, oh, I would have done this, and, oh, I would have done that, and how could he let this other man slap him on stage? You know, one thing I do want to kind of speak about is this notion of what we consider to be strong, or what we consider to be like a masculine response to what happened. Because, you know, a lot of, um, you know, talking heads, pundits, comedians the list goes on you know came out as if what Chris Rock did in response was a symptom of weakness that if Chris Rock were stronger or bigger or whatever the case may be then he would have defended himself and I really want to reframe that I mean um, what is more of a symptom of strength than to absorb the things that are happening in the moment to like take a deep breath and to Make with a clear, as clear and sound of mind as you can after something like that, decision about how you want to respond. Or at the very least to say, like, I won't respond until I know that I can have a rational response. I I saw or at least heard some audio of of Chris Rock's first show after the incident. It was sold out, and I think a lot of people are hoping that he would, like, come out and do a step joking about it. And really what he said was, I'm still processing it. And how many arguments would each of us have avoided, whether it be in person or social media? How many poor decisions um, would we have avoided if we just took the time to process?
2: Yeah, so exactly. I just want to
3: say that I think that was a strength what Chris Rock did.
2: I, I think you're right about that. Hey, that reminds me, and we just have just, just a, a few minutes left, Matthew, and I'm really enjoying our conversation. But I want to give you a chance Likewise. to tell people... Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you're the founder and CEO of a group called Overcoming Racism. Um, can you explain what that is a little bit? Do you want to talk about that
3: that organization? No, I, I, I sure can. And, and then to just to correct one thing, which is in my bio, but uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in New Orleans, uh, that was something that I did in the past. Uh, I'm not even sure if that commission is still... Uh, it's still it's still operating, but um, I appreciate you for highlighting as well. You, you yeah. did
2: it so well they don't need it anymore.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I don't <laughs> know about that, but I, would, I certainly wouldn't go that far. But, yeah, so overcoming racism, uh, just to tell you a little bit about my background, I was, was a seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher. I was a school administrator in New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, one of the things that I saw working in my school, which was predominantly African-American, was that I was able to teach some of the most brilliant, critical thinking, curious, um, excited to tackle the world kids that I'd ever met, and I had, you know, gone to an elite university and all these different dynamics, and um, you know, these kids really just opened my eyes to um, disparities that I knew already existed, but they were right there in the front of my face. Uh, these students who face, in a lot of ways, insurmountable obstacles outside of school, and then with very good intentions on behalf of their educators. Face many obstacles inside of school as well. So, I founded the organization Overcoming Racism to teach and educate about ways in which race impacts um, students' experiences in schools. And then that work has grown to now working with healthcare organizations on health disparities, corporations, um, nonprofits. The list goes on. And the goal of the organization is thinking about well, how can we envision and actualize? anti-racism, how can we envision and actualize equality and equity in our spaces Um, and how can we do this in a way that elevates all people it's really sad because um, there's all this kind of fervor going on in our country about critical race theory and you know uh, what it means to have conversations about race and what it seems to be the answer to these types of conversations that people are going further into this conversation around like let's not talk about it and you so, know, I'm um, glad
2: I'm glad you you brought that up, Matt, because I, you know, for years I've tried to think of myself and tried to fashion myself as not racist, and then all of a sudden, I'm being told that's not good enough if I'm not anti-racist, and it's important that when that point is made that it's explained what that really means what the actions are that go from you know being passively not racist to actively anti-racist and the other thing is I hear all this debate about critical race theory and there are a a lot of people that are pushing for it a lot of people pushing against it but very few people that will tell me what it is (laughs) yeah (laughs)
3: <laughs> let me try to do both of these things quickly in the time that we have. we maybe should have started with this because <laughs> May- it, maybe it probably branch it could probably branch off into a broader uh, very enriching conversation. So let me address the first thing first.
2: More with overcoming racism founder and CEO Matthew Kincaid straight ahead. <laughs> <Time's under>
7: Program dot <laughs> program.com. Tom Sumner
1: program.com From the Tom Sumner
7: Show Oh
0: Yeah Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
1: This is our shot.
8: Now it's up to you. (laughs) Yo. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
4: So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed it's a robocall scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace they can make it look like they're calling from any number even from numbers of people you know my robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good but i need your guys help don't trust your caller id verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And Mom, Dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
2: More with Overcoming Racism founder and CEO Matthew Kincaid straight ahead.
3: Anti-racist versus not racist, okay? Um, the first thing is is that, you know, if you are a person who cares about animals, right, um, there are probably some things that you would likely do. You might think about whether or not the products you your skin or hair are tested on animals. Uh, you might make sure that the meat or that you eat or the eggs that you eat or anything that comes from animal products are farmed or sourced responsibly. Maybe you choose to be a vegan or a vegetarian because you uh, are in disagreement with the way that meats and or animal products are produced. If your person cares about the environment, you will likely think about your environmental footprint. You will maybe drive a fuel-efficient car or an electric car. Maybe you don't drive a car. Maybe you carpool to work or maybe you take public transportation to reduce your individual Um, footprint. You will probably recycle, you know, your things. When we have interest, when we care about something, we take action to affirm the fact that we care about it and we take action to ensure that either the groups of people or the environmental conditions or whatever the case may be, that these things are respected and that we make sure that, 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 you know, we're doing our part to, 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 you know, um, either reduce our environmental footprint, or to ensure that animals are treated properly, or whatever the case case may be. Well, it's the same thing when you talk about sexism or racism or classism. Um, the question is like, well, what actions do we take that are informed by the fact that we don't want racism to exist? Right. So you might educate yourself about racism. You might watch, you know, a film or a documentary or read a book. You might think about what the stance is of the political um, uh, candidate that you vote for. Think about these issues, right? You will take steps and actions to ensure that the impact of racism is minimized. And this isn't to like, demean people who are, you know, have been working really hard to be not racist. I actually think that many people who are actually and genuinely identifying themselves as quote-unquote not racist are probably taking anti-racist actions. I think it's really about just redefining the term. It's almost like if I were to walk into a store, you know, and stores tell me, well, I'm not going to discriminate against you. Well, that's great. Like, I don't want you to discriminate. But in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the bare minimum that I can expect from you is to, like, not mistreat me. Instead, right, I want to know, like, how will you make sure that, I'm also comfortable in your store, that, you know, I'm going to have the same experience as another patron when I come into the space, or if I'm going to a job interview, or if I'm, you know, um, up, you know, if I'm applying for a promotion, or whatever the case may be. And so that's really what that conversation is about, is that, you know, we should align our commitment of race. I think we should all agree that racism is bad, <laughs> and we should align our commitment against racism with action, and that's all it means to be anti-racist. Now, in terms of critical race theory, let me define it very quickly. I think what's really sad about what's happening in terms of these conversations about critical race theory is that people are being very intentionally misinformed because politicians and people that are powerful have found that they can kind of whip up this fervor using this term because it's obscure and most people don't know what it is. And people, unfortunately, are reacting without really educating themselves about what the term is. Number one, critical race theory has been around since the late 1960s early 70s, but most people had never heard of it until politicians started speaking about it last year. If critical race theory was this really scary thing that we should all be concerned about, well, it's been in existence for over 50 years. So, um, you know, if, if it's been existing and you've been living in, and you have had no concerns about this 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 legal scholarship, then there probably is a no reason for you to have concerns about it now. What critical race theory is, as simply as I can put it, it was a small group of legal scholars who looked at the history of this country and they said, which I would imagine most people could agree with, that laws and policy have been used across the history of this country to promote and maintain disparities as a result of race or to promote and maintain racism. We've, of course, seen a lot of activism to overturn those laws over time. And their argument was, well, if law has been used to maintain racism, How can we use the law as a tool to dismantle racism? All the study of critical race theory is, is an obscure group of legal scholars studying the law to use the law as a vehicle to undo racism. That is it. This notion that critical race theory is being taught in K-12 schools is a myth. Um, And while because of critical race theory means what I just said it is, I think it's a positive thing. But unless your kindergartner is, uh, is taking advanced law school courses, then critical race theory is likely not being taught in their school setting. Unfortunately, what's happening is that this term critical race theory and the misinformation about what it is is being used to um, make it really hard for teachers, principals, school districts to talk about race to kids, (laughs) um, which I believe is necessary for young people of all races to grow up and to contribute to the diverse tapestry of our country. We don't undo racism by pretending like it doesn't exist, and we know the history of this country, but we can undo it by naming and acknowledging what has got us to this point and the mistakes that have been made in the past and learning from those such that the next generation does not repeat them. And so um, there have been conversations happening in schools about teaching students to understand each other better based on our differences and to um, understand what it means to exist in a diverse world. Unfortunately, those conversations are being halted because of this fictionalized version of what critical race theory is and isn't.
2: Well, Matthew, I feel much more informed after talking with you, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your expertise with me and the listeners this morning. Um, And and sadly, we're out of time because I I really am enjoying this conversation, and I hope we get a chance to do it again. Um, But in the meantime, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd yeah, like th- to share?
3: Sure. Uh, overcomingracism.com or Instagram at overcomingracism. I just wanted to thank you so much for your time, and I think that even this conversation is just a really great example that if we sit down and talk out the issues and share our perspective, you know. Um, we, can we can do can this. Probably be a, we can do it, and we'll be a lot closer <laughs> than we are uh, far apart. So thank you for the opportunity, and I really hope you and your listeners have a, a great week.
2: All right. And, uh, Matthew, keep up the good work.
3: All right. Thank Thank you so much. Bye.
2: Again, Matthew Kincaid, he is the founder and CEO of Overcoming Racism. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
5: Another five-minute mystery. Our story takes place in Green's Gap, a small town in the Southern Cavern
9: District.
6: Green's Gap Hospital, Doctor Melville speaking.
9: Doctor, Doctor, there's been an accident out at Echo Cavern.
6: Accident? What kind of accident?
9: Two men were exploring and they got lost last night. One's unconscious. You better come quick before he's dead.
6: I hope you know how to
0: get out to Echo Cavern, Len. Well, with the job of being town constable and ambulance driver, I reckon I know all there is to know about these parts.
6: Ever been in the cavern, Len?
0: Once, Doc Melville, when I was a boy. Nearly got my hide tanned off by my paw. Echo Cavern's a mighty treacherous place.
6: You mean it's easy to get lost in it? But not only that, Doc. It's that cavern gas carbine, mmm, something. You mean carbon dioxide?
0: Yeah, that's it. All of a sudden, you run into some of that stuff, and before you know it, you're out.
6: Still, people seem to be going uh, exploring
0: in there. More fools to be. I wouldn't go into them caverns, at least, till I was not without a dog.
6: A dog? What
0: for? Well, if a dog keels over, then you know the gas is collecting.
6: I'm afraid, Mr. Gaddy, your friend is dead.
9: Oh, poor Patsy. It wasn't from the gas, was it, Doc?
6: That's what it looks like to me. Why'd you go into that cavern anyway?
9: Patsy asked me to. We'd never seen a cave before.
6: How far did you go in?
9: Well, it didn't seem very far, but all of a sudden we lost our way. Where was that? Well, how do I know whereabouts it was if we was lost? We tried to trace our way back, but it was no use. Patsy started to get scared. It's kind of funny to see a big guy like that get scared.
6: Yeah, he is rather big, isn't he?
9: Yeah, six foot four. The mob used to call us Mutt and Jeff. And then what happened? Well, I was a little scared myself, but we stuck together. You know, walking in the dark with only my flash from the car. All of a sudden, Pat's keeled over.
6: From the gas?
9: Yeah, that's what I figured. His head hit on a rock, and I guess that just about finished him off. I suppose you reckon yourself pretty lucky, mister. Yeah, sure. I figure it's because I'm only 5'3 that I got out of there alive. Gas must have been just about a foot over my head.
0: Yeah? And what do you think about that, Doc Melville?
6: I think you better arrest Mr. Gatti for the murder of his friend, Patsy.
5: What was the flaw in Gatti's story? Do you know it? In a moment, we'll hear from Lem and Dr. Melville. And now, let's see whether you're as observant as Lem and the doctor.
9: Hey, copper, let me put my hands down. They're tired. When you're in Green Gap's jail, not before. I don't get it. It was a good story. I still can't figure out how you found out.
6: Lem tells me they used to take dogs in the cavern because the gas is heavier than air it collects on the floor. If you really meant gas, you would have keeled over first, before your pal Patsy.
9: Well, what do you know? I tell you, nowadays in this murder racket, you need a college education.
5: Another five-minute mystery.
6: This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, Sean Cantwell, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. Stay tuned to the Tom Sumner Program for future mini-mysteries.